0: You do without freedom? Will you fight? Welcome to Leverage Addicts, the podcast for investors looking to maximize returns through leverage. Join host, seasoned mortgage professional, and real estate enthusiast, Blandon Lerm, as we explore property investing strategies and learn how to navigate the market to build new wealth.
1: What's going on, everybody? It's Blandon here, and this is episode three of Leverage Addicts. Today, we are talking about eight reasons why you want more leverage in 2023. How's it going, Andrew?
0: Just thinking about my money problems, man. <laughs> Interest rates going up. Got to find a way to, uh, to keep the money coming in and more money coming in.
1: First thing we should start with, you know, I was thinking about with these episodes, whoever we have as a guest, the first question we should ask them is like, how much debt do you have? We're going to see what's up, you know, how much debt do you have? Currently,
0: if you include all the business debt, you know, it's probably like 4 million, maybe more.
1: That's what I call leverage. So I'm beating Andrew just slightly in this race. Currently I'm on about 5 million. Uh, obviously I would like more, but <laughs> <laughs> it gets a little bit scary with the interest rate where it is. Why would we want more leverage? Why would, why would people want more in this environment? Well, everybody
0: wants to have. You know, $10 million or $100 million, you can't save your way to having $10 million unless you're earning 500 grand or a million dollars a year. Most people are never going to achieve that in the income side of things. So if you're buying assets that are worth $10 million, for example, the way that you're able to do that is by using debt. Now there's a saying, if you want to be a billionaire, buy a billion dollar business all on debt and pay it off and you'll be a billionaire. And it's the same principle, whether you're talking about $100,000 or a $1 million or $10 million. And it's not a new phenomenon. For thousands of years, people have been selling their businesses primarily using vendor finance because the people that want to take over and buy those businesses are not, they don't have the money.
1: So that sort of sums up our first reason, right? Leverage means using other people's money. Yeah. If we can be in a position to put other people's money in an asset that's going to benefit them and also ourselves, that's the best position to be in. Because if you're borrowing, obviously they already have a promised rate of return. And then what we're trying to do is put in an asset that's going to appreciate more than the cost.
0: And I think the missing factor that a lot of people forget is when you're using other people's money is because it's beneficial for them too. When you're borrowing from the bank, they're getting a rate of return and they're getting security. If you're borrowing from your parents or from you know, a private business owner or a property owner, you have to give them a return and a security enough that they would do it. You're solving their problem. They're solving your problem. That's that's why borrowing other people's money works. And it's just about being good enough to make those deals. Which is quite
1: interesting, right? Like if, if you look at, say, for example, Andrew's position, he's got 4 million of debt right now. Let's just say. He's getting at least seven percent return on the four million by 11 years i think it's around there that's when the four million will have another four mil of gains so effectively doubling you you basically have doubled your principal by just waiting with a steady return
0: yeah and, and letting inflation and gains do the work of even if you're not paying down the debt is just building your equity
1: can you tell me about the the graham hart deal that he did
0: oh you're asking me to it? go back in the archives now man in my head do you remember
1: that man one of the deals that he did where he yeah it, so like, I think it was just too big to swallow but it was just other people's money like government backed
0: my understanding is he bought a business for like around a billion dollars and it was like 87 percent levered and that was like with bank finance with private equity finance with, you know, there was only 13% equity in a billion dollar deal and very quickly they were able to create new equity through, you know, financial engineering basically enough that they can double the equity very quickly. And that puts you in a strong position where you can refinance, get you know, better rates or less guarantees or securities or even sell some assets, get some cash more dividends and um, have some form of offset to become truly wealthy is to try and do as bigger deals as you possibly can that you're comfortable to do uh with with leverage enough that people are going to follow you in the deal
1: yeah I think a deal like that he probably had to show something like 30 percent cash flow at least for I guess any institutions to sort of be comfortable but Hey, I don't know the details of it.
0: When you're borrowing at that rate, there's going to be, there might be 5, 10, 20 different loan structures. Some might be principal and interest, some might be interest only, some might be capitalized, some might be um, equity, equity share, some might be a mixture of, there's so many different ways to put deals together. Um, and not all of them involve having to have like a cash on cash return in the short term, You can sell a story. I wouldn't be surprised if get Graham Hart, one of his core skills is to sell the story. And when he did that deal, he was going in off the back of other successful case studies to say, Hey, look, I've done this before. I will help you get the return that you want. This is my business plan. Let me do this deal.
1: I apologize for putting you on the spot, but uh, next time we'll get the actual facts. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah the actual facts takes away from what what is the principle of the story is yeah even the billionaires the richest man in new zealand is using the strategy of other people's money and he would not dream of trying to buy a billion dollar business using his own billion dollars he would always reduce his risk by bringing other people into the deal and what that forces you to do is to present the deal in a way that you have to convince people to part with their money too it forces a high level of due diligence and less emotion you've got to present a logical deal in a way where you're taking the knowledge out of your head, you're putting it on paper.
1: So hopefully we did the first point justice. Obviously, leverage means using other people's money. And it's a concept that you can utilize, right, at any stage in your life. You can think it on a about it on a micro level, on a much larger scale. Um, obviously, this is something that's tested and done throughout history. So second point we have here is that leverage is how we build wealth in this current financial system so how would you sort of think about that like how would you explain that to somebody
0: leverage allows more buyers to be interested in purchasing a property or a business or an asset because most people are not cash buyers so if you're trying to sell something that is you know five million dollar property there's not that many people around that have five million cash that's liquid and they're not looking at other things to spend that money on No, ideally what you want is you want a lot of buyers that can borrow three or four million of that five million because what that allows you to do is to market that property at its fullest price to multiple buyers create competition and keep the, the price Um, at that higher level.
1: It's quite interesting because if you looking at at a micro level and if you look at it on a macro level, I think a lot of the news headline talks about how, Hey, the country goes into this cycle of like, just keep borrowing money. They can't pay off, but actually that's how the system is run, right? Fractional lending.
0: Borrowing today is basically you're betting on the future being better than today. And you would, if you thought the future was going to be a lot worse, you wouldn't borrow. Yeah,
1: it's. I mean, if we were to try to simplify it, right, like everyone wants to buy a house or almost everybody. And when you buy a house, you lock yourself into a mortgage of 25, 30 years. And that's how the system runs. The thing is, if, if you look on a micro level and then you just amplify it, that's how the economy runs. The government is running on debt to basically say, hey, you get what you want now, but you promise to keep working. And so are we ever gonna pay off our debt? probably not unless we change the monetary system
0: it's not prudent to pay off all of your debts you know if you want the highest return on your capital it's safer to compound your equity using intelligent levels of debt and it would depend on your age and your risk appetite and how much money you've actually got. But it's not uncommon for billionaires, for example, to use 30 40% leverage on their property deals. They got all the cash they need to pay that those deals off, but they want to make sure return on their equity is kept high. Yeah.
1: So I think maybe if we unpack what Andrew is saying here is that let's say if you've got a million dollars, you are getting 5% return. That means you're getting 50000 in return,
0: most of which is eroded away by inflation, yep. And fishing power goes down.
1: And so, if you can break that into say maybe five tranches, so instead of one million dollars, now you've got five investments of 200,000 and you can get 80% leverage on those, you're still getting the upside of 50,000.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting your capital gains um, on a much bigger number if you're able to deploy that into more properties.
1: So, this is all obviously assumed that assuming that the debt is paid for by some, some sort of cash flow from the asset like maybe rent or some sort of business income and if there's a p- capital growth of 5% you're basically 5xing your return on the capital gains of 50,000
0: yeah and there's a definite um, when you're talking about leverage it depends on what atmosphere you know you're talking about leverage should you use leverage when you're buying stocks probably not you know unless you really know what you're doing leveraging into crypto or into stocks uh, more people have been caught out than being successful and success doing that. A lot of that can be attributed to luck rather than skill. Well, I mean, if
1: you look at a financial institutes like bank, right? Like who would they back? You know, the guy leveraging to buy stock or leveraging to buy a property because property, I guess, is like way simpler. The variables are way lower.
0: Well, they can take it back. Exactly. The premise behind property in good location is it is tangible. So third point we have is
1: swapping lower you assets allow you to gain more leverage and it's probably a good idea
0: yeah i mean assessing an asset whether it's property or business or if you're buying something using leverage that has strong cash flow it is going to support your your borrowing power it's going to allow you to cash flow in a way that there's a surplus and when you're buying an asset, so to speak, that doesn't have a cash flow, then you're probably pulling cash away from something else. So the opportunity cost, the reason you would do that is you're expecting the value of that asset to to significantly increase, um, because you're you're sacrificing the cash flow. And as you as you grow your investment portfolio, you really rely more on cash flow a lot more than you would realize when you're beginning yeah definitely and
1: and i guess a simple way to maybe get everyone to think about this is like hey the the yield or the rent or whatever cash flow you're getting from your current asset if you tripled it would you be more comfortable to get more leverage probably and that's that's the thing right like a lot of people when they hold on to an asset for a long time and i think it's the wrong
0: way to think about it they pay off the debt they don't increase the rent exactly they don't realize the return on their their locked equity is it's like two or three percent one non-property and non-business related example is you take countries like you know china vietnam where they they grow two or three crops of rice each year versus if you're trying to grow rice say in new zealand you might only get one crop a year so they've got an advantage to get a much higher yield if you're investing in say rice farms you wouldn't pick new zealand to do it It is a very low yield activity with a high labor cost. You take Vietnam, very high yield, low labor. And what you're trying to do is apply those learnings to your property and business investing.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point that you said, you know, I think a lot of people think about like, oh, I bought it for this much and now I'm getting this much rent like on a property. But what you're saying is you got to look at how much return they are getting on the equity that's locked in. How much is the asset worth now? Are there alternative assets for the same price that will give you much better upside, perhaps that you can improve the property or you can have way better cash flow and that would significantly change what you want
0: it should be assessed on a more regular basis don't let the the five to ten year periods tick away yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: and and often i think people forget the fact that we're quite lucky in a country where capital gains even now is only like a 10-year timeline you don't have any tax to pay after 10 years that's that's a hack that we kind of need to exploit
0: yeah i mean assuming one day there will be a capital gains tax you want to take advantage of property and the lack of inheritance taxes and things like that you know take advantage of it for as long as as we get away with it yeah
1: definitely fourth point here we have high interest means lower prices higher interest rates means lower prices
0: it's kind of a inversion curve when uh the cost of borrowing goes up that means people can't afford to borrow as much to buy properties or businesses uh, it, it puts pressure on those those businesses with their costs as well. So it makes them less profitable, therefore a less attractive asset to purchase. You know, when high interest rates go up, forgetting the maths, it just makes people less confident to take action. And that's what we've seen in the last 12 months. Interest rates have gone up and people have thought, wow, I don't want to get caught out by this. So people tend to wait yeah. until they get a bit
1: yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's quite obvious to to the human eyes. Like when interest rate goes up, we see stock price, property price go down. Because there's a, a fear, right? Like straight away, it's like, well, interest rate's going to go up. We got to let go, and obviously demand's going to come down as well. So it's a double whammy. And I think. If you take the fundamental approach in terms of how you analyze something, looking at the intrinsic value, I think you're going to find that a lot of the assets right now are below what their long-term average would be.
0: Yeah, well, when you're doing those analyses, it just depends on your time frame. Um, So there's plenty of properties and businesses for sale at the moment that are overvalued, and there's also some that are undervalued. And it's about how good your due, due diligence is and your, your spreadsheet work and how confident you are to, to pull a deal together.
1: Yeah, I think definitely you're right. If we're just looking at the last couple of years, it's, it's not fair, right? We have a significant amount of money being injected to the economy. The returns are out of whack. But I definitely think if there are some sort of analysis around, hey, 20 years, 30 years, long term average, that should give you some sort of safe projection, like a, a relatively, you know, you'll you, you have a rough figure, Let, let's say if you go, okay, well, we're working with 7% over the last 25 years, I think you can you kind of figure out where
0: asset price should be. You just look at basic principles, doesn't matter who which government is in power, you no know, labor government, national government, money printing will will keep happening. And if you look across the whole globe, and then you compare New Zealand to most other countries, New Zealand is still a very highly desirable place to live. And so and you compare our productivity relative to our like for like countries, productivity in New Zealand is actually relatively low, it's, it's well below the mean. So you look at, okay, we're too, chill. <laughs> we're too chill, but the assumption would be governments will keep printing money, which will cause more inflation, there will be a high demand to live in New Zealand. So uh, demand for businesses and property, and just in this industry in general, will, will stay high. And productivity should revert back to the mean. Like we should get a lot closer to average productivity. Therefore, GDP goes up, confidence stays high. Like New Zealand has a large KiwiSaver base that's growing that that money will get invested. So over a 20-year you know, timeframe, there's a lot to be excited about to invest in New Zealand.
1: I definitely think the proportion in terms of how we're spending our Go, like our government spending is not in the right ratio. <laughs> we, we focus way too much on, I guess, what the complaints are, right? Complaints is about housing, but what we really need is perhaps business innovation, education, uh, infrastructure. Those things probably will yield a better long-term result.
0: Yeah, if the talented businesses and people decide to stay in New Zealand, they will create wealth enough for the whole country. Now, I'm not sure the exact stats, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's less than 40% of workers and adults of voting age are contributing to like 90% of the tax intake the government collects on a net position. So it's like a small percentage and a, and a decreasing percentage of people are keeping the country going. And that's not a bad thing as long as you allow those top contributors to flourish.
1: You're such a capitalist.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just saying. Being a capitalist is, allows you to say, "Look, what's the best net for everyone?"
1: So, third point here is high interest rates actually means higher expected return as well, or you, you can potentially find higher yielding assets. And this is definitely true. I can I can say with confidence the properties that we have seen in the last say twelve months, it, like we saw an uplift in, in the sort of rental yield that we're seeing on those properties. They're selling what they would normally sell for. Um, 10, 11, 12% is actually not uncommon with a bit of improvement, like if it's a reno deal on a multi-unit in the regions, um, still some of the major cities like Hastings, New Plymouth, um, Palmerston North, like maybe the outskirts of those cities, you can still see sort of double digits in return.
0: Yeah, your yield comes from your purchase price, the higher interest rates push the purchase prices down. If you're able to add value quickly, then you can maintain that high return on 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 equity for a long time.
1: Yeah, and what are you seeing in the business space as well? Are there much difference in the expected return on some of the business deals you were doing in the last 12 months compared to the 24 months, like 24 months ago that you were looking at?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're combining a higher interest rate, higher inflationary environment with uh, the global difficulties in supply chain. So what that has done is increased cost for freight and for for product and for a lot of things and it's made it a confusing time for businesses that basically keep the economy moving with real products. So what I think is going on at the moment is businesses are very protective of not losing their clients and less concerned about trying to make a a high margin um, because of how difficult it is in a high inflationary time to actually measure your real return. So. You know, it might on paper look like you're making good money but when you account for all of the costs you know, the businesses are probably making closer to the normal market return for all the stress
1: I mean what you're saying is basically a lot of business might operate on a lower EBITDA and that would result in a lower sale price or are you seeing perhaps there's adjustment on multiples as well. Like would they, would you be able to buy businesses on a lower multiple during a time like this?
0: I think what, what is happening is uh, a lot of business owners have been distracted away from structuring their business in a way that makes them easier to sell. Because I've been so focused on just keeping the business making money. And so what a trend is definitely going to be is many businesses that do change hands will change hands to more like owner managers or in more creative deals and less less using a business broker that is just expecting for a sale to happen and money to change hands. It's because the bank is not going to lend people the money in the same way they used to. And people, if confidence is, is lower, won't be prepared to put securities up.
1: It, can, it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you were to sell in the worst market, you're not likely selling because you want the best price. It's like, hey, just want to get
0: out. It's a timing thing or a confidence thing or a health thing or you know, not everyone gets to decide the perfect time to sell. Yeah.
1: And I think I think we will see a lot more of that in the property game as well. Seeing oh, the oh, interest yeah, rate yeah. coming off three four percent we're already
0: starting to see some some vendor finance deals in the property you know, i've heard the guys talking about vendor leaving some money in makes so much sense yeah you know, trying to figure out how you know how to structure it legally and with the finance side and um, timing and... i think
1: the real estate agents gotta up their game on creative financing
0: The real estate agents are definitely gonna have to understand how they're gonna earn their fee
1: there might be a pitch we can uh, put together for the agents like creative financing consulting
0: Do you want to get tagged with that? All right, well,
1: we've got six point here. Debt gets eroded with inflation. This is one of the points that Andrew always talks about.
0: And it's a core principle of investing. If you borrow money and in 10 years it's worth double what you paid and and you never paid off a cent of that money you borrowed, your equity, now you can go into a very, very low amount of equity and earn a lot of paper money (laughs) simply holding on to an asset, a business or a property. And the only thing you really need to worry about is cash flow um, so you can either manage it yourself or get someone to manage it. If you buy something for a million dollars and you 100% finance it and in 10 years time, it's worth 2 million and you can sell that property, pay off the 1 million and you've got yourself a, a $1 million of equity and you might have only you might have borrowed the deposit. So you can create a million dollars out of nothing simply through your, your hustle and, and that's what investing is, is all about. You're able to do that through knowledge and through providing value enough to the other parties that they would let you do it
1: because the interesting thing is like again we're talking on a micro level on a macro level the government is, is trying to do the same thing
0: well yeah they don't want businesses that have been operating for 20 30 40 years to close they want somebody to pick up their business and run with it so they keep paying tax So they keep employing people who pay tax so they keep the productivity of the economy propped up and it's the same with property uh no they don't want the property market to crash government certainly doesn't want that not a big crash at least um, because so much of new zealand's wealth is in property and the banks pay a lot of tax so the government wants to make sure the banks actually keep making money
1: i do think we will see a mini crash at least, sometime in the future.
0: In the next ten years, it's highly likely there will be some form of of major crash. But if you go back to nineteen eighty seven or two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, like what happened? We we look back and I say, like, oh, yeah, the market crashed. You know, tough time. But look at where we are now.
1: What's a mini crash anyway? I need I need to make sure I define these terms. I. Eh? Well,
0: we already had a mini crash. The property prices significantly increased over 2020, 2021. From that point, the high point significantly decreased we were looking at trend lines last night and we're still sitting above the 25-year trend line for a lot of the property prices in new zealand across a lot of places so will they keep going down a couple of percentage points there's a good chance they could especially with interest rates going up but over the long term most people are predicting that trend lines will continue yeah
1: definitely i think next time i see three percent interest rate i know what to do and that is to get as much debt as possible and lock it in for five years. I mean, I'll lock it in for 10 if I can. I think TSB was offering that at one point, the 10 year rate, should have took some, eh?
0: My friend is uh, buying vineyards in in France and he's got millions of Euro fixed at uh, 1% for 30 years. It's an interesting game when you're investing and you look at other countries the way they do it, the way New Zealand does it, and you just got to figure out how to play the game where you are.
1: I mean, even 5% is not that hard to make, eh? Like if, if you go, hey, look, just at 5% lock as much as possible and, you know, we reinvest in our business. We already, we should be able to get better The way you think about
0: it is, is how can you bring value for the partners involved in the deal, whether that's the person selling the person helping you buy or um, professionals involved. Just think about how you can bring them value and then keep enough for yourself. Now, a good example I like to reflect back on is Benjamin Franklin. He started his printing shop. You know, this is like in the mid 1700s. He got to the ripe old age of I think it was about 44 years old. He sold that business to the manager. And the way he did the deal is he did a profit share, 50-50 of the profits. The manager keeps half and half of the profits for 18 years goes to Benjamin Franklin. And that was his restraint period as well. What ended up happening is 18 years passed and he still survived. He started a competitive business after that period. What Benjamin Franklin was able to do is he got 18 years of profit share and he didn't have to work. The manager got a business basically for no money down and he got to keep half the profits and there was, there was probably no, no professionals required in that deal. Yeah. Everyone got value. Yeah.
1: I guess that's sort of similar to like an employee shareholding scheme. Right. And, and a very, very, how do you call it gentleman agreement type of deal that they did and that worked out based on trust. So the seventh point here I have is that we've talked about it. If you owe 1 million, that's your problem. But if you owe a hundred million is the bank's problem.
0: I remember this quote back from Aristotle Anassis, who he's kind of famous for marrying uh, Jackie Kennedy, um, but he was a shipping magnate, um, I think there was a few Greek uh, shipping magnates, uh, it's probably in the 60s, 70s, I can't remember the exact dates, um, but he would borrow, I think in the 50s he borrowed 100 million to buy some ships. And it didn't really require any of his own money to get the deal done. He's famous for saying, if, if you borrow a million, it's your problem. If you borrow a hundred million and something goes wrong, it's the bank's problem. And it's just a its a mindset. It's a mentality of how can you get yourself to construct deals enough that they have enough quality in them that somebody will be willing to back you to, to a big amount. And that um, you're limiting your downside and you're allowing somebody that's looking for a return on their capital to be party to your deal you're giving them an opportunity to make money too yeah
1: I think we're uh, man we're just we're too small right now what what do you call it like it's we've got baby debts baby debts yeah baby debts at the moment we've got to get to 100 million the road to 100 million debt
0: (laughs) do I worry about my debt level Not really, it's because I'm confident of the cash flow and I'm confident of the next deals I continue to do will just strengthen and um, help the deals I've already done to become even better. Being bigger as an investor, as long as things are cash flowing and you've bought the right things, it's actually safer than being smaller. Because if you're a small time investor, you are in in the second seat behind the bank or the lender who's controlling things. Uh, you're, you're definitely not too big to fail is it? if you build up a bigger portfolio or invest in a, in a bigger group it definitely gives you the option of being more picky with your lender and um, the lender has less control less ability to dictate to you definitely on the road to 100 million well if you if you think about Debt? it if you think about it as in a monopoly what you're trying to do is build up um, a string of hotels that are next to each other, and that gives you higher chance of of having success and better return. Where you, sh- if you only have one or two properties and they're all spread out, you know, three or four across the board, you don't have that same monopolistic power. And it's the same with investing; as you get a bit bigger, get a couple of assets in the same class, like if you buy three properties next to each other, those properties are not one and one and one equals three. It might be one and one and one because they're next to each other equals five. And it's the same with businesses. If you're buying businesses that that have synergies, real true synergies, you can buy them all three or four of them for a million dollars each, but they might be worth $10 million at the end of that because of the size and the scale. And that's why like money makes money. When you're successfully investing and you keep doing it the returns on your like per deal go get bigger
1: so what are what are we going to do for celebration the day we hit 100 mil debt
0: probably some big donation (laughs) big anonymous donation and we'll just do a whiskey clink that'll be enough for me donation to my bank account sounds good
1: (laughs) so i think uh what's interesting though i think when we look at like i mean i've seen thousands of profiles right like from new investor to really experienced one. The the thing that's really interesting is, you know, most residential, even if you're very experienced investor in that space, you're looking at like a 10 mil, 15 mil net worth of your like really, really good by the end of retirement. And I think that is an amazing achievement. It's, it's honestly, I think that's why we wrote the book. I mean, Andrew wrote the book, uh, Three Property Formula Workshop. Three Property Formula.
0: The Three Property formula is, is the framework for creating financial freedom. You know, it's most people don't think about it and they get to the end of their life and they realize, oh, it's too late to build wealth. Because that, that
1: will safely put you on like two, probably on a trajectory on around two, three million. Uh, if not, uh, if you have a longer time horizon, probably a bit more. And that will be a very, very handsome retirement. But I think if anyone wants to hit that sort of like 50, 100 million plus, right? in properties, you're looking at someone who scaled their development company, or they're doing some sort of commercial um, deals. And I think Bob Jones Jones
0: is a good example, but it's more like a private group of friends that syndicated deals together. No, a good example might be, um, I think it's Bob Clarkson. He had a run for mayor in Tauranga a long time ago. He built up a big portfolio of industrial properties because he had a construction company and he would buy plots of land as the city would be expanding out and then he converted his portfolio to shares in a syndicate the important thing is to have some form of strategy and to take action probably more regularly than you would and then having the accountability of advisors and whether it's friends or family in your investing group it helps you to take action because there's, there's so much fear to take action and there's so many distractions it's so easy to delay taking investment action because of the risk
1: you just gotta wait right you just, it's about uh getting the debt good debt and wait, and that sort of sums up to our eighth point because if you gotten good cash flow leverage no one ever says like oh yeah i've got too much like don't don't give me more debt like if you've got good leverage in a time like this you only want more you're not going to be scared of the interest rate and so what what
0: would you say is good good leverage good leverage what as a percentage or as a cash flows or well h- how would you define good leverage anyway good leverage is uh buying an, an asset below value that cash flows in a positive way and that if you are buying an asset below value using leverage then you're arbitraging you're creating equity on the day that you purchase and arbitrage is what investing is all about because if you're just getting the market return you might as well invest in real estate funds or managed funds that that get you the the average return without the effort if you want to have returns above average you need to find forms of arbitrage. If you don't know what arbitrage is, like look it up. Arbitrage is such an important philosophy to have in your mind that you're trying to buy things below the value.
1: It's kind of like if you can buy Coke here for a dollar, and you and this other vendor will take Coke at dollar twenty, they'll refund you dollar twenty at any given time. You just you just buy the Coke where you, where you can find it for a dollar and just keep refunding for dollar twenty. I guess the way I see what good leverage means is. Sometimes you got to look at the overall position, like you got to look at the overall portfolio. So if you only put into a portfolio just full of deals that are undervalued, then perhaps sustainability is going to be a, a bit of an issue unless there's supplement cash flow somewhere else. right? You always have to like either eat into your principal. So you're doing a reverse mortgage or you have to have some sort of cash flow coming in. So I think undervalued deals, perhaps you could find better undervalued deals and higher margin deals when perhaps cash flow is lower. But if you're looking for higher cash flow deals, sometimes the margin might not be as much, but you can still find a lot of deals that are undervalued. But you can structure your portfolio or your leverage in a way where, okay, you've got a, a bit of really, really undervalued assets that have a lot of high uh, potential gains. And then you can you can supplement with high cash flow leverage. That's gonna balance out the overall leverage portfolio.
0: Now if something's listed for a million dollars, how do you figure out what it's worth? Is it really worth 850 or is it actually worth 1 million 150? That's where the work has to be done. You have to do your homework to learn about how to attribute value to things and and to learn about how you're going to increase its value or why buying it for a million dollars today and it's actually worth 1 million 150 because you're able to increase cash flow because you're valuing it based on its yield rather than replacement cost and the market is valuing it based on its location and replacement value not the yield, the way that you value things, that, that that's the missing lesson. And a lot of people are not willing to do the work to figure out how to figure out value. But if you want just a
1: starter, you can check out our YouTube video about how you can buy properties under value. And that is a video in the channel. So to wrap up this podcast, what's your advice on approaching leverage this year with a high interest rate environment? Everyone's scared of cash flow. What, what What's your advice?
0: if you don't have much equity then you're going to have to create much stronger deals to bring other investors in and that's going to require them to be extremely confident in in what you know what you're doing having no equity or having no cash or no deposit is not an excuse for not being a successful investor it's an excuse for you not to take action. And I'm trying to say action can be taken even if you're not a good saver or you're not earning enough that you can save a lot of money is because the skills that you can bring can be deal creation or deal finding or partnering and using your income to support other people. Don't allow a lack of money to be your excuse for not taking action this year because this year is a year where businesses and property owners, they have low confidence, especially before the election. It's actually a tremendous time to buy things under value and if you believe new zealand's confidence and economy and things are going to pick up in the years ahead especially with inflation pushing prices up it's actually a fantastic time to buy things don't let a lack of money be your excuse for not taking action
1: yeah i think two things definitely one is people who are in a position they should take advantage of it with caution and caution meaning doing your due diligence, understanding the market or the intrinsic value of different types of properties. And you you definitely want to think on the overall leverage position. You want to plan out five years. If interest rate were to go up, what would happen? Could you lock it for five years and still lock in the positive cash flow? So planning out five years, taking advantage of the situation. I think second one is just really hone in on the educational side, because if you're not in a position to act right now you could definitely spend a little bit of time every single day for the next four months five months just to learn about investing in properties and this is this is the year to do it because i think unfortunately a lot of people are gonna be in the hurt and that's sort of i guess one man's loss is another one's gain and you know the the person who's
0: prepared the most wins what do we know about investing five years ago not that much what do we know about investing now? We think we know a lot more because we've been putting in the work to learn. And losing some money. No, when you lose money, it makes you a better investor. You don't want to do it too often.
1: <laughs> All right. And that concludes our episode. Definitely subscribe if you want to learn more. And we would love to hear your feedback. You can check us out, mhu.co.nz. If you've got feedback, send to support at mhu.co.nz, Or you can reach out to us as well. You'll find our contact in the, in the website. And we've also got a YouTube channel where you can have a little bit more around properties with illustrations and whatnot. So see you guys in the next episode.